What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. I am one of your regular hosts that you hear every single week. My name is Mitch Oliver, and with me today I have... You got Kyle? And in uh, brand new Dolby surround sound, you have yeah. Boozy. Dolby wow. Atmos, we're, we're um, a year and a half in to a pandemic yep. <laughs> and, and we get boozy we finally were able to get boozy a podcast mike so from here on out i think just the quality in general is going to boost um but of course like what 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 pushed us to make sure we all have the best mics we can have uh the best sound that we can possibly have what could have pushed us to mm. make it happen for today for this what episode what could it be hmm. oh boozy, would oh. you like to we just got paid. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this episode, we talk to Dean Cundy, the, the cinematographer man. of wow. movies like you'll, you'll hear me say this all again, so I don't think I need to do it here. But I think we just we just finished talking to him about five minutes ago and we wanted We're on to a Dean high. We're on a straight Dean high right now. Yeah. And uh, we just I wanted to make sure all three of us are here to intro this episode because this is an incredibly special one for us. Uh, I think I can safely say, I don't think we even talked about this yet, but boys, I think this was a great episode and this was I, a great I, interview. Yeah. Welcome to the tear table debrief. And to start the debrief, I want to say that indeed was a good episode, Mitch. I agree. Yeah. We killed it. And also Dean, nicest guy on earth. Yeah. It couldn't, couldn't have asked for a better experience with uh, a legend like that. Like this is the man who was there shooting Jurassic park. He shot Halloween Halloween I, too, the I thing. Can't, like fully fathom that. Like it's, it, it makes blows yeah. my mind. Guys, yeah. let's not forget that it's Dean Cundy ASC. He he deserves That's a good point. His ASC. Yeah, he does. Well, we got to put some some respect on his name. But yeah, yeah. What, like incredible. We we did that. Yeah, no, yeah. it was amazing, and I'm just so happy that we can share it on our feed. And I know yeah. uh, Dean had mentioned multiple times to us that he's just happy to you know, be able to offer up some anecdotes for our listeners and, you know, get a peek into the mind of a man who's like, influence his influence on cinematography, cinema, cinema in general is just, and there are just some good bits in here that I think every, like some listeners out there, everyone is going to go home today with at least one like valuable piece of film information. I swear yeah. to God. It, yeah. He had some great crap. advice for, for just anybody overall. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Especially if you're interested in the craft of filmmaking, but you do not need to be interested in that side of things to get something out of this episode because it's just it's tremendous. But like I love yeah. like there's so many things he talked about, like the his influence on old movies. I'm excited for Daniel and the Cobwebs listeners to maybe come over and <laughs> hear hear uh, hear Dean Cundy talking about Turner Classic movies. Like it's just yeah, uh, that's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, I don't I don't think we'll spoil anything else. Uh, we just wanted to dip in here, start this episode off together and usher in this this uh, this interview that we had. So, yeah, do you guys have anything you want to add before we let the show roll? Let's get into it. Let's, Enjoy. Let's, let's get right into it. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoy this episode of The Terror Table with very, very special guest, Dean Cundy. ASC. Direct West is a proud partner of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. Is marketing getting in the way of running your business? Direct West has a local expert team right here in Saskatchewan that will work with you to build your website exactly how you imagine it. Let them help you improve your online presence and head to directwest.com to learn more.
So today, it is our great honor to welcome a true cinematic legend. He was voted one of Kodak's 100 Best Cinematographers of all time and has, has over 100 credits as a cinematographer, including five of John Carpenter's feature films like Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, and Big Trouble in Little China. He also shot six of Robert Zemeckis' feature films, including Romancing the Stone, The Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Death Becomes Her. He also, of course, shot two of Spie Steven Spielberg's monumental feature films like Hook and Jurassic Park. We couldn't possibly be more excited to welcome Mr. Dune Kundi to the terror table. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. It's a pleasure to um, be able to talk to you and to your um, audience and um, share some of my um, experiences and, and thoughts. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, first of all, I just wanted to say, like, um, I think it's safe to say that the three of us, all three of us have at one point in our lives worn out the tape on countless films that you photographed. Like my family still mentions almost every family dinner about how obsessive I was with Steven Spielberg's hook. And, and I've mentioned uh, several times in the show, I wore out uh, several copies of Jurassic Park throughout the years, and I own several more copies. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll add to the sentiment, Thank you know, you back to yeah, Back to the Future has been a huge. All three films have been like instrumental in my family's lineage, I guess, growing up and throughout my entire life at this point. So we thank you for all your hard work. Well, it's been hard work, but um, it's also been a great pleasure to um, to be able to participate in in some film history. You know, which I hope that doesn't sound too ostentatious. And uh, oh, definitely whatever, not. But, yeah. But um, you know, and that, and that's one of the one of the things that I think I appreciate about what I do have done is that um, you know I hope this doesn't sound too morbid, but I will I'll be able to leave something behind that uh, hopefully will um, you know be watched by uh, generations from now. I a lot of times I'll go to. Um, a meeting or a convention or something and have people come up and say, Oh, you know, I saw, um, you know, Jurassic park or, <clears throat> or, um, hook or whatever. When I was a kid, it was one of the first movies my parents would let me watch. Um, and, um, I say, Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you, um, were able to do that. And he say, yeah, now my son is, you know, and, and what that means to me is it's like been three generations of people who have seen and appreciated uh, the, the things I've done. So, um, you know, I, I feel very sort of proud about that. Well, your library speaks for itself with that. And I'm, I'm sure it'll continue to like, I'm, I'm sure once I have kids, they're going to be watching everything you put out. <laughs> Yeah, my my nieces are all just obsessed with Jurassic Park right now. So it's it's so exciting watching my my sister's children grow up watching the same movies that we, that I loved and that my sisters loved. And yeah, it's it's safe to say that your catalog of films is going to last a very very long time, Dean. Absolutely, not many yeah. things make it through several generations. So 
it says a lot that the films you've been a part of and you know had your hands on have done so so you should really be proud of yourself and that's fantastic and i'm happy to hear more about it as i say i've been delighted to be able to participate you know i wish i could say that i had created all of these films completely by myself but if i said that i would be such a liar <laughs> yeah you you photograph photograph some of the most monumental moments in cinema history both blockbusters like jurassic park and back to the future and then low budget horror films like halloween that would go on to become classics so what are some of the memories that come to mind when filming bizarre horror sequences like the chest swallowing the arms and the thing or the iconic pov opening of halloween well you know it's interesting because um a lot of people say, oh, I, I can't watch horror films. They're, they're too scary. And I have to remind them that, that it's only a movie. All they're doing is sitting in front of their TV or they're in a theater watching this flat screen that has, you know, essentially moving colored shadows. And um, it's not real. But, you know, the, the task of the filmmaker is to get you sucked into it to make you feel to experience it as as if it's real well um for us on the other side of the camera we are very aware of the fact that it's not real we're just there you know having actors do scary stuff and and putting dark shadows where things could be lurking and and moving the camera in mysterious ways and composing things so that uh, that the evil pops out of the shadows or the closet or whatever you know so we're we are just the the craftsmen um you know and and um so it's it's kind of fun to look at and talk to people about how affected they are by um, the images they see and how how well we created them or put them together or, you know, whatever, so that, that people do experience the, um, the, you know, the, the effect that we're trying to do, whether it's horror or, or comedy or fantasy, adventure, whatever. Um, and the fact that we, we have this sort of distance that, you know, w w when I go watch the horror film, um, I look at it not that it scares me or I'm terrified it is sort of like oh that was effective I'm glad we did that or well we could have done that better or whatever you know so so I have a little different perspective on on horror and I you know I while I try to reassure people I um I also don't want to um destroy the illusion Right. I don't want to tell people, you know, well, no, no, no. Just think about it as a flat image. Um, I'd say, well, thank you very much. I'm glad we um, touched your emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And I can say, like, uh, you know, for all of us, like I was watching Jurassic Park and all this stuff at such a young age that it was all real for me. So to, to grow up and know that there are people, you know, behind all the images and constructing everything and, um, you know, adding the cinematic voice it's it, it's just so interesting to learn about and it rejuvenates the love for for all these stories that you've been a part of yeah you know i i um 
I think that's part of the, part of the fun of it is knowing that they're they're only rubber dinosaurs. You know, they're not real. You know, we didn't go out and capture some if we could. But um, the, uh, the the fact is that we we know they're you know rubber. But if we do our job properly, if we you know do the art properly, um, and the technique and technology, um, we get people to forget that there are no dinosaurs. Um, we get them to forget that um, you know that the guy with the mask and the knife isn't real. Um, and and I think that's a lot of the. Um, a lot of the fun and, and satisfaction in what I do. Um, I have a couple questions. Just kind of going back, uh, this is quite a bit earlier in your career. Um, what was the differences you kind of learned in terms of, just because we're a horror podcast, we kind of focus more on that. What was kind of the differences you learned in direct or uh, cinematography early on working with a director like uh, Reginald Lee Borg when you did uh, So Evil My Sister, who, who uh, came up in the 40s, versus uh, working with someone like a young uh, John Carpenter uh, for Halloween. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've worked with um, a lot of directors, obviously. Yes, yeah, um, quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Early, early in my career, before Halloween, I did, like, I don't know, 15 or so low-budget action films, um, a couple of which were supposed to be horror films. Um, and... Um, I felt at the time that um, some of the directors just felt that the camera was a device for recording actors talking, as opposed to a, a way to engage the audience visually um, with the story, with the you know atmosphere, with with the location that uh, they're supposed to be in, and engage them emotionally. And I. Um, you know, I would attempt to um, to suggest a, a camera angle or a, some movement or or a way of visually telling the story, and and was frustrated at times when somebody would say, "Oh, that's no, that's too much trouble." But I was encouraged when when um, when a director would say, "Oh, oh, that's that's a, let's try that. Yeah, that could be good." And, you know, you go to the dailies and then you look at the finished film and realize, yes, it was a good idea. And so it, I was fortunate in being able to uh, have a place to learn and try out um, visual storytelling. Because I, as, as I talk to people, I say that's essentially what I do. You know, there's writers who do the words, there's actors who do the characters. Um, and the, the director who coordinates all that, but my concentration is visual storytelling, engaging the audience with the with the images, and um, so I it was um, really kind of great to do all of these low budget films and have a chance to experiment, have a chance to um, learn how to relate to actors, to the director, to crew and so forth um you know it's it's interesting because there there are guys who who come up through the um what we call the studio system even though now they're independent films but um where you 
get a job as a camera assistant, and then you move up to first camera assistant, then you move up to operator and so forth, and and you're always watching uh, decisions being made. And if you're <clears throat> if you're good and perceptive, you um, um, you you learn from that, and you remember what did work and what didn't work, and so forth. But a lot of times you're so busy with the job you don't have a chance to sort of sit and analyze. I was fortunate in that I was kind of thrown into it um, from the top. I I did a little bit of technical work and then I worked in some other areas of film. I did makeup and special effects and things like that. All the while knowing I wanted to be a cinematographer. So I I was sort of learning some of the other people's crafts and and, um, and uh, techniques, but I I was fortunate in that I began very early uh, in my career as a cinematographer, having to think about the images and think about working with a director and actors and so forth. And so I think it was trial by fire in in that, and I uh, I was able to learn very quickly and almost harshly, but, uh, you know, I, I, it made you concentrate. And, um, so I, when I had my opportunity with John Carpenter, um, I think I was prepared, um, to, uh, you know, and obviously you're, it's always a, an upward movement of moving from one job up to the next, up to the next. But but I was incredibly impressed by the fact that John Carpenter was also a visual storyteller. He thought about the camera. He thought about engaging the audience with the camera and the images. And, um, I, you know, he wasn't the guy who thought of the camera as a device to record actors talking but as a way to engage an audience. And, and um, so I, I was incredibly uh, fortunate in being able to meet and work with John and, um, and you know, he and I would progress um, up the ladder as it were, um, as, um, you know, as we worked. That's fantastic. I mean, now that we're like getting into a bit more of your ever expansive career it's pretty clear that you've had a chance to work with some of the greatest filmmakers of all time you know spielberg carpenter zemeckis and even the honorable and friend of the show joe dante having worked on films for almost like 50 years now what is it like looking back on your accomplishments and maybe what are the aspects of your profession as a cinematographer that have drastically changed or even stayed consistent over time well that's actually a good uh, good question <clears throat> i um I, I came up when we were still using film, when the camera was um, separate and the sound was recorded separately and so forth. It was, it was the, the system that had, you know, progressed a little for a hundred years. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and it, it was, you know, uh, by today's standards, sort of primitive, although, it's still pretty sophisticated, but um, and it made it made one think about every decision because when you 
set up a light um, and you set up an, an, a lens and a camera angle and, and you set an f-stop on the lens and all of these decisions that you made, um, as I like to describe, you know, all the work you do out in front of the lens, it travels through the lens as light and gets captured on film. Whatever you did out there is stuck on the film. And you have to have made all these decisions properly. <clears throat> Compared to the digital world now, where um, you can put out a light or set up a camera angle or whatever and run over to the monitor and see almost exactly what you um, are getting, or at least, you know, what the potential for it. And if you say, oh, I don't like that, you can run out and fix that. And if you come back and say, yeah, oh, no, it was better the other way, but maybe I'll put the light over here, you can, you can sort of, um, you know, manipulate the stuff you're seeing out there. And when it's captured, it is what you saw and what you did. So um, that's been, I think, one of the, the big um, differences in how we work. Um, and it's gotten even more, more and more uh, interesting, uh, sophisticated, complex. Uh, the technology now, uh, we're going into what we're calling virtual filmmaking. Um, <clears throat> I just finished a, a series um, that the stage is a large room, you know, say 30, 40 feet high by 120 feet square or whatever. Inside the stage is a large circular screen that goes 25 feet high and it wraps around the outside walls so that when you stand in the middle, you are everywhere you look, you're looking at an LED screen, a TV screen. And what that allows is you to um, put on that screen any image you want. It can be real film of a location or um, in our case, uh, a digital uh, CGI uh, you know, set, a, a completely fantastic building. And you, you build a little bit of a set on the inside of this area and all around you is a new world, a virtual world. And it allows you to create sequences and, and stuff that uh, otherwise are um, almost impossible. Um, there's no way you could afford to build um, a set with, that looks out onto a fantastic city. You would uh, have to do it in some way, but this is a, a whole new area where we're going. And uh, the lighting has changed. We now use LED lights a lot compared to um, the uh, tungsten lights, the conventional lights that we used to use. And um, so they create a different quality of light. So we're constantly adapting to the new technology, the lighting, the um, visual effects, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, volume, as we call this giant TV screen that we're in the middle of, 
um, we're constantly adapting to this new way, and it's moving faster and faster. Like I say, for the first hundred years or so with film, evolution came, you know, relatively slowly. They'd make a new tool, they'd make a new technique, but it was just a refinement of something that went before. Now, the the um, the things we're doing are so radically different that it's hard to keep up. The reason I'm doing this um, this series with all of this incredible technology is just to say, you know, what's happening? Where are we going? Um, you know, and how can I how can I stay uh, a, you know apprised of what we're doing? D- Dean, I, I got to ask, um, and it's totally okay if this is something that you're not able to talk about at the moment. But by the way that you're describing this this new um, this new experience that you had, uh, you're credited as being as working as a cinematographer on a couple of episodes of the upcoming Star Wars, the book of Boba Fett, which is a spinoff of the Mandalorian. Like this is a style or a, I guess a franchise that you hadn't worked in before. So what I guess I'm wondering is, is the magic still there for you? Like when you go into a place that's, that's filming something as grand as Star Wars and you see the different ways that people are doing things like, do you still have that that love and that passion that you've started your career with? Absolutely. I think I think this new challenging technology um, is is what intrigues me. I, <clears throat> you know, I I got into film because as a kid, when I was like ten years old, I would go to the movies and uh, and see these these films like um, the one that stands out um, for me a lot is Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And, um, you know, I don't know if your audience has seen it, but I would recommend it as a a look back into film history. And it's a crossover to what we do in film, which is literature. You know, Jules Verne, one of the great science fiction writers of his uh, time, um, was able to invent these worlds that were impossible in in, um, in in the imaginations of most people back in those days. Um, I was intrigued by the fact that uh, we were able to take imagination that you know you had to read a book and create the images in your mind. We were able to create the images on a screen for your eyes to see, and then it goes into your brain. And um, it, to me, it was fantastic as a kid, the magic of film, of, of um, the storytelling. So I got intrigued with, um, with um, you know, magical, you know, storytelling very early on. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. I've been very, very fortunate to actually do what I wanted to do. And, um, and I, and I think that's one of the things that appeals to me most about, um, what, what we're doing now is we're taking it to the next step. We're creating images and scenes and sequences and, and movies that are, you know, beyond the imagination of reading them on a book because, um, you don't get to see the character in your book in front of this amazing 
background and and so forth uh, and the explosions and the, the creatures that are after them and so forth because very often you're you're reading just you know Jack turned and ran um, he looked back it was coming after him what was coming after him and, you know and for most people to imagine something that we can create in film is very difficult you know so you 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 sort of get you know, part of the story, part of the literature, but um, we're we're able to fill in the rest. We are able to embellish the backgrounds and the incredible action and the the uh, characters and and you know, um, creating even even simple you know romantic comedies and all. Uh, we are able to get an emotional reaction out of an audience um, in an environment that um, you know may may not be uh, obvious. We can create a unique environment. So I uh, I think that um, you know where where we're going is more and more towards this magic uh, and filling in the blanks that a lot of people um, you know don't do when they're just reading or. Um, you know, when when we were making films, um, you know, even just twenty or thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like like on that subject, they're talking about films that were made twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing was notoriously met with overly negative reviews upon release, but it's now considered to be one of the greatest horror films ever made. I know that it was a massive, massive inspiration on this podcast, beginning in the first place. Um, so, but what my question is for you is obviously now that movie is very beloved. People just praise that movie to no end and celebrate it every year that goes by. But at the time, did you see John's vision for the film when you were photographing it? Or was this maybe one of the times where you were a little skeptical of how crazy all the effects were and everything that you had to fit on screen? Yeah. So I guess I was just wondering if you, if you saw his vision. Yeah, I think so, because um, John was, you know, very imaginative, <clears throat> but he also let other people um, run with uh, his imagination. Uh, Rob Bottin's uh, creatures that he um, created, um, the fact that I was able to create a world with light and, and shadow, um, inside and outside the the um the camp uh, out in the snow and um uh, all, all of that i think was what happens on a a film that becomes somehow appreciated and exceptional is the fact that everybody involved on it whether it's the thing or back to the future or roger rabbit or jurassic park or whatever um everybody involved is invested they all say oh you know this is this could be really great nobody says yeah oh, another day at work i guess i'm gonna have to just design some creature um everybody um <clears throat> everybody gets so involved and uses the inspiration and ideas of others to build on your own that um those films um, sometimes are, are uh, ahead of, of time, you know. I mean, the thing, 
came out when uh, there were movies about two aliens. Uh, one was E.T., the happy alien, and everybody loved the happy alien. Um, and it was a positive story about an alien, um, as opposed to this one about this awful thing up here in the, in the down in the Antarctic and, and uh, you know, these poor guys trapped. And, you know, so it was a different kind of creature story. And, um, you know, so the audience at the time reacted with their box office tickets. And, um, you know, and there were, uh, you know, the um, the people who who wrote the reviews, you know, that also didn't get it quite. They thought, oh, well, this this I've never seen one of these before. It must not be good Um, over a period of time. You know, it's shown that, uh, you know, uh, if I can call it this, that we were we were ahead of our time as far as the audience sensibilities, uh, the style and technique of storytelling, uh, of design of, of, you know, strange, weird creatures and and, uh, and so forth. So <clears throat> I think... Um, I, I think it's fun to be, have worked on on various films that were ahead of their time. That uh, at the time the audience said, "Huh," and the um, all of the um, you know reviewers said, "Well, I don't know." And over a period of time, um, people have said, "Wait a second, uh, how did that get by me?" Um, you know what a what an imaginative, uh, inventive uh, film that uh, was and um, still is. So, so that's one of the things I really appreciate about um, the um, my my job because um, it well, you, you know, you, you never work a day in your life if you do what you enjoy doing. And I've I've had a lot of jobs, but I've never really worked. I've just <laughs> been part of a creative force that is that is you know created these these things we call films and you know they're getting more and more inventive and we're we're able to uh, see them now even more easily you know you don't have to worry about you wore out your vhs tape (laughs) i'm gonna have to go buy another um now you can just you know, go online or on your computer and find so many films, historical old films. You know, I I encourage people to watch historical old films. Um, and and I don't mean historical old films from the eighties or seventies. Yeah, I'm talking about going to something like Turner Classic Movies or just online and watch. Films that intrigued an audience at a particular time. And how was the storytelling done? And are the characters still valid for our our sensibilities and our imaginations? And how did they tell the story differently? And, you know, you, I, a lot of times I'll if I teach a class, I'll ask, um, how many of you have, have watched Casablanca recently? Oh, uh, how many have seen a black and white movie? And 
there are no hands. And I say, you know, that's like being an English major and saying, well, <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time on, on Mark Twain and Shakespeare and, and Charles Dickens. Um, you know, well, no, you have to understand where, as filmmakers, um, we have come from and, and what's the legacy. But also, as an audience, you need to um, watch old films and say, where as, where, where as people have we come from? Where as people who read and understand and watch stories, what touches us? Um, you know, and and um, how does that fit into the the things that I find relevant or or that move me? Actually, had a question you'd mentioned kind of about being ahead of the curve, which you've done quite a bit in your career. Um, what was the difference working with? Uh, I, I believe it was ILM with something like Roger Rabbit versus Jurassic Park, which are polar opposites in terms of of their feeling and emotion, but you also having to create those characters. Uh, you know, or, or leave space, I guess, for them. Was that uh, quite difficult in the learning experience? Well, <clears throat> I, I look with a, a lot of satisfaction on the fact that <clears throat> when I was doing films like Roger Rabbit or Jurassic, we, uh, we were ahead of the curve. Um, for Jurassic Park, nobody had ever done a photorealistic creature in a computer. They'd always been models and, and um, you know, animated or whatever. Um, and with Roger Rabbit, we took a, um, a storytelling technique that's been around since the silence. Disney started off with Alice in Cartoonland, which was um, a live-action girl composited into a cartoon world, an animated world. So that storytelling technique has been around and they you know disney said well you guys we we did pete's dragon and and um you know various other films that's how you do it and we decided we were going to go beyond what had been done before so just like with jurassic park and the computer we developed techniques for compositing animated characters into the real world in a believable way, uh, a more believable way. And, um, you know, so I, I, uh, I look with satisfaction with the fact those films still hold up, that we were um, ahead of the curve to the extent that, um, you know, you don't look at Jurassic Park comparing it to the other Jurassic Parks. And um, then, um, you, you know, say oh well i can tell the difference look at look at the computer work is too jerky or or there are matte lines around the creatures composited in or or whatever you know you can you can uh, watch the movie and just be absorbed with the story and not aware of the technique or technology how do you feel that uh, Jurassic Park has held up? I'm, I'm assuming you've checked out uh, Jurassic World and some of the some of the sequels in terms of how they've changed the design quite a bit. Um, do you have any comment on on the, kind of that versus the original? No, I um, <clears throat> I have seen them. I and you know, and I think I think the sequels do what um, 
what people try to do with sequels. They say, well, you know, that was really good, that last one, but ours is going to have dot, dot, dot. And they (laughs) invent or try to invent um, new things, maybe some technology, characters, um, action, you know. And and if you look at uh, films over a period of time, like uh, Fast and Furious, um, over a period of time, now that they're in number nine, all of the action is completely impossible. It takes us on a journey that's impossible, but, you know, we for some reason enjoy that because, um, you know, it wasn't possible in the past. Um, the first Fast and Furious was about guys racing cars. <laughs> and stealing DVD players. Exactly. Yeah. I often forget that. Yeah. And, and, and if you look at the trailer for the new one, you know, there are trucks flying and people jumping off of buildings in ways that would kill them in an instant. <laughs> oh, right. I can't but, wait. but, um, you know, he, he survives. And, uh, so, um, you know, I, I think that with the Jurassic parks, they, um, they're always looking to up the ante and, um, <clears throat> you know, the computer allows them to do that more and more. Um, you know, we, uh, we had uh, a limit of 150 computer uh, shots, computer-generated shots that were allowed by the budget and by the fact that they had no idea whether it would work. So Universal said, I'm sorry, boys. You can only do 150 dinosaur shots or whatever. Um, now that's, you know, 150 shots per scene. Um, and we've, um, we've, we've come a long way in the storytelling, um, but also what, you know, what the computer allows us to do to go sometimes overboard and, um, uh, <laughs> and the audience, I think it, you know, I sometimes wonder if, if you showed, um, um, some of these movies, uh, to an audience, if you could go back to the thirties or forties and, and run, uh, one of the movies and, and Jurassic park is probably not a good example because there were films being made in the thirties, like King Kong and stuff about these moving large creatures, but like, uh, um, fast and furious nine, um, would an audience say what? <laughs> no, that's a ridiculous. This is a stupid movie. Um, but we are uh, now getting used to expecting that. If it right. doesn't do that, if it doesn't go over the top, we go the opposite way and say, "Oh, that was a stupid movie. <laughs> it was too real." I could, I could drive down the freeway and see that. <laughs> well, t- well, talking about how you know film has you know changed and adapted over time. Uh, horror as a dra- genre has drastically evolved over time. Uh, what do you think are some of the major, I guess? visual changes that horror has undergone over the years. And I guess furthermore, what do you look for in a horror film or what do you think makes a successful horror film? Well, I think horror was always about <clears throat> imagination, about the, um, the experience that we are glad we're not going to have, you know, whether it's a guy chasing us with a knife or whether you go back to the old days of Frankenstein and, 
Dracula, um, you know, when when those films came out in the uh, in the thirties, um, that was a new kind of experience for an audience, um, a, a chance to experience an emotion that um, they, you know, we were all glad we didn't have to experience in real life and we could participate. And um, so I think horror over a period of time has remained a, um, a staple of, of the kind of films that an audience wants to uh, enjoy uh, because it does give you that chance to dabble in, um, you know, the dark emotion that uh, you're glad you don't have to do in real life, um, you know, except for some people who sadly have guys with knives after them. But uh, but for the most part, <clears throat> we elect by choice to go and experience this this dark emotion. And, uh, and so I think that um, over a period of time, we've gotten more explicit, you might say. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot more blood. Uh, Halloween, we didn't use any blood. It was all of the the terror and and you know the killing and everything was implied. You might say there was no no squirting um, of blood anywhere, and um, so over a period of time, there's now there's sort of no 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 pour more blood on him. That's it's, no, it's got to drip all over the floor, um, you know. So um, I I think that that's been one of the um, one of the things that have have changed about horror, um, the the way it's gotten more explicit, the way the stories are told, and they they get make it more contemporary. Yes, we still have um, creatures that are impossible. We know are impossible. Um, we know we will never meet one of those. Um, but uh, then there's also horror that is about. Um, the potential of um, of our own experience of being chased by a guy with a knife. Um, one of the last movies you uh, horror movies actually you worked on was Deep Rising way back in 1997. I believe you're on second unit for that, um, and you've moved on to quite a bit, bit of different genres since then. Is horror something you ever plan on coming back to? Or I know you did work on Creep Show a long time ago. Is that something you've considered maybe? Uh, they're, they're currently going, to, I believe they're having their third season or just finished their second at least. I think that um, I, I always looked at horror as one of the best visual storytelling genres. So much of it is <clears throat> engaging the audience with the visuals, with where the camera goes and how it tells the story. And so I, um, I, was delighted because I had done these action films that were, as I said, a good training ground. Uh, I was delighted when Halloween came out and, um, and it was interesting uh, because we were talking about the popularity of, of the thing and so forth. When Halloween came out um, the first week, the box office was, you know, not very impressive. And everyone said, well, I guess, I guess people don't want to see that. Well, the second week it it doubled. Uh, the third week was even bigger, and it was it was proof that the word of mouth was you know informing the audience 
that they would like this experience. And <clears throat> so I think that that's one of the one of the things that uh, you know we we talk about in other films that are some of them were not successes because they're just bad films. Um, they don't tell the story properly. Others are um, become popular, like the thing, because the audience catches on and says, "Hey, wait a second! How'd I miss that?" Or "You got to go see this; it's amazing," or whatever. So I I think that one of the um, things about horror was the fact that it was such a, a dramatic visual storytelling. It relied so heavily on the camera that I was delighted by that. And, um, you know, I, I did Halloween two and three and I was getting calls all the time for people who were, said, Hey, look at all that. What Halloween did lets us make a, uh, make us a, a horror film. And, you know, you'd read a script and say, no, that they don't, they missed it. And I didn't want to get typed into the horror guy. You know, there are some guys that it did. Um, I I immediately looked for other kinds of films, small films, you know, a, a little musical, a, um, a, a car chase thing, something so that I, I wasn't only going to be offered, you know, horror films. And um, so I, um, I, I have since then have uh, mostly tried to do anything that, I consider visual storytelling Roger Rabbit because it was a, a world that, you know, required the camera Jurassic park. Um, you know, you could call that horror or adventure or whatever, but it required the camera to tell the story and, and all of the decisions that you make to capture the image, you know, the lighting and lenses and, and all kinds of stuff. So <clears throat> I, um, I um, immediately said, "Well, let's let's only do films that are, you know, the the best choices are, are the ones that are all, all about visual storytelling." So I I um, made a conscious effort to 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 try to select and look for those kinds of films, and uh, and um, you know, I've been fortunate in finding you know quite a number of them. Speaking of like visual storytelling, like one last one last question for me is, um, and back to Halloween again is like you've been credited for being one of the very first cinematographers to use like fluid shots uh, that are now known as Steadicam shots. What was it about Halloween that inspired you to try this at the time, which was a less conventional camera technique? Well, <clears throat> just about the time they of Halloween, they had invented. The Steadicam, and uh, in the case of Panavision, the camera rental company, they they built their own, the Panaglide, which was um, essentially a copy. John was very interested in doing something unique with the camera. He knew that that um, the camera was the hero um, of the storytelling. So <clears throat> when we uh, we discovered this, um, I. Uh, I went to Panavision and I tried this thing on and I had actually gone to um, Tadeo and used it once before on a film, their, their version, which was the Steadicam. And um, 
and I was so impressed by what you could do with it. Um, in moving a camera before required the camera either being on a very big dolly and limiting where you could put it. You know, you couldn't go down a, a little narrow hallway and and follow a character up the stairs and all of that. So the 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 camera on the dolly was a tool that is used, you know, still predominantly. But moving the camera, they had come up with lighter cameras and they could handhold them. In fact, put them on their shoulder, move the camera, you walk and follow or lead an actor. But it was almost impossible to get rid of, you know, the, the camera movement that was created by your body, by your walking, by your body swaying side to side. And it was an artificial sort of look compared to what we were used to seeing in movies. We were used to seeing very um, stable shots and smooth movement, and and uh, it, I've always found it distracting uh, because in real life, we don't go through life handheld. We go through life with steady cam. Our eyes, our brain, everything stabilizes the shot. So as you walk, you're not seeing bouncing and jiggling and side-to-side and -side movement. You're seeing a very steady movement. And that's how we perceive the world with reality. So the Steadicam was the, the device that allowed us now with a camera to move an audience the same way they would go through life with a, a smooth, steady movement, but into places that you know you couldn't get a camera up the stairs and around the corner and, and, um, you know, through the hallway and, and, um, you know, through the restaurant and around the table and all, all of the things that people would do in real life, you could take them on that journey with, um, um, you know, the Steadicam. And, uh, so, um, I immediately gravitated to that idea and, uh, John, uh, did also. And, uh, so, we made the camera a uh, participating character. We made the audience a participating camera, a participating member of the, um, you know, the the show, the the uh, story, and the characters. And um, you know, it was um, it was fun to do that, and for other people to say, "Hey, wait, I can see a use for this thing." And, uh, you know, it, I think it really helped um, other people see what, um, you know, the potential for, for the camera. That is fantastic insight into a very seminal piece of uh, horror in film history. Thank you so much for that. Uh, we won't take up too much of your time here, Dean, but I would be remiss not to ask you this question since we are a horror podcast. Dean, do you have a favorite horror film? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, don't see them typically. Um, I've seen recently, I saw a, a, a quiet place and, um, you know, a few things like that because just trying to stay up with what's popular with an audience. Um, but I, you know, I, people always ask me, can I watch a movie for the movie, uh, for the story and the characters? And, and I think, um, I, my answer to that is yes, I can. I watch with two halves of my brain. 
I I watch the story and the the storytelling and what the director and the writers and the characters are doing. But I also, um, the other half of my brain says, oh, that's an interesting camera move. Oh, I love the lighting in the background. Oh, you know, so it's hard to disengage from that um, because right. you're appreciating other people's work. Uh, you're stealing good ideas, um, you know, and I've always said that the, um, you know, the thing you want to deal is um, do in this business is steal good ideas. Don't don't steal bad ones. That's right. That would be stupid. Right. But, um, you know, and we learn from each other. We find out, oh, well, that's an interesting technique or, oh, yeah, I did that and he liked it. And yeah, and it still works. And, you know, so I um, I don't know if I could say I have a favorite horror film. I um, I have um, uh, films I appreciate. Um, you know, for the work they've done and, and, um, other ones I, I appreciate for the intensity of the visual effects, but not necessarily for their choice of doing it that way, because right. it suddenly pulls you out of the storytelling. So, uh, I guess I, that's the, uh, long answer of, uh, <laughs> I can't yeah, tell you what. That's, that's a great answer. That's yeah. that's more than fine. But yeah, Dean, thank you so much for taking some time today. We're, we'll let you go. You've been so generous uh, with your time with us today. Uh, but before we let you go, I just wanted to let you know that the, th the three of us here at the Terror Table, we are all aspiring filmmakers. And like your cinematic voice and your talents, they've truly been monumental and instrumental on our film love and our pursuit of a career in film. So Thank you so much for all of your contributions to cinema and for just, you know, helping bring some of the most instrumental movies of our time to life. Well, it's been absolutely my pleasure um, to have been part of, of, uh, of them um, and to have been part of presenting them to an audience that uh, eventually appreciates, you know, what, uh, what we've done and, um, uh, and um, how how we've been able to um, you, you know sort of further the uh, the art and craft of uh, of storytelling and filmmaking. Awesome. Well, it was lovely to meet you, Dean. So yeah, thank uh, you so much. You. This is yeah. fantastic. Uh, been my thank pleasure. And, yeah, thanks so much, uh, Dean. Of All course. Right. Thanks yeah. to the audience for listening. Yeah, absolutely. I know our listener base is going to be so excited when they see that you're coming on. So we can't wait for people to hear this. But yeah, we'll let you go. Hope you're hope you're staying safe and healthy and happy and have and enjoy your summer coming. Well, thanks very much. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and we'll talk thanks, to you Steve. later. Take okay. care.